As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. We had the total contenders wheel to wheel again, a resurgent teammate grabbing the race victory, massive tyre pressure rule headaches, potential penalties, self-imposed team orders and the nothing to lose Marquez, but not Mark, in the middle of it all. And yet we leave the Malaysian Grand Prix with the 2023 MotoGP World Championship fight kind of in the same place it was when everyone arrived at Sepang. Pekka Banyaya was 13 points ahead of Jorge Martin, now the gap is 14 with two rounds left. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. Joining me are Simon Patterson and Val Horenci to talk about all the things that happened between Thursday and Sunday at Sepang. And that's not just in the title fight, that's also in the ongoing Honda 2024 saga, which took an awful lot of twists and has ended up in a situation we really didn't expect coming into this weekend. So... We're going to start with the championship fight, and I'm afraid, listeners, this is going to be quite a tyre-heavy conversation, tyre-pressure rules in particular, because we're leaving Sepang with both Martin and Banyaya potentially on the brink of a penalty in one of the remaining rounds, meaning the chance of that penalty deciding the championship has got significantly higher. And it really did set the tone for the racing this weekend. We had a couple of absolutely brilliant laps early in the Grand Prix where the championship protagonists were wheel-to-wheel, and you really didn't know how it was going to end. And an awful lot of laps in which absolutely nothing happened. So, Simon, we'll start with you. What is your overall takeaway from this weekend in terms of the title fight and and how this tyre pressure situation is impacting it? Because things really fizzled out in the main race, didn't they? I mean, this issue with tyre pressure... Uh, limits that's been brewing since well realistically since the start of the season because it was originally supposed to come in earlier on in the year but then really only came into effect halfway through the season I hate to say it but it feels like we're almost to the point now where it could ruin what was going to be an otherwise uh, fantastic championship because the more I see the more races we go through and the more people get handed warnings for, for breaking the rules the more I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the championship's going to be decided by this. Um, we're going to see one of these championship contenders get slapped with a three-second penalty that's going to cost them a lot of points, and it might well be the tipping point in the championship. And no one wants to see this battle decided in a windowless room by three anonymous men an hour after the race is finished. That, that We deserve more than that after how close this season has been. 
um, it really is at that critical point now, I think, uh, with with both Bagnaya and Martin get into the last two rounds with a, a warning piece and the potential for, you know, even the slightest infraction to, to see one of them really heavily penalised. It um, it could be the defining narrative for the rest of the year. Uh, we, we saw Alicia's Pagaro get handed the first penalty last week, uh, last race in Thailand. Um, doing a little bit of digging this weekend, it, it would appear that he was like not point not two bar under the limit. Ouch! Uh, that's n- nothing, and he was handed a three second penalty that dropped him, I think, three or four places in the final finishing order. Um, one of those penalties handed to one of our leaders who are, you know, normally first, second, or third at the minute, and it's a huge point swing, and it just seems like. It seems like all our fears about this role when it was first introduced are starting to come true now. I liked, I say I liked, it was it was very Jorge Martin. Martin's take on learning that Banyaya had a warning as well was uh, very much in character for him. It was basically, okay, great. I can now take as many risks with tyre pressure as I want. I can race however I want because we're both in the same situation. Now, uh, the, the whole of picking that logic is... You're in the same situation now, Jorge, but if you take this completely gung-ho approach to racing and tyre pressure risks the rest of the season, you're notching up a three, then a six-second penalty pretty quickly, whereas I suspect Banyai won't be quite that that cavalier. Do, what do you guys think about Martin's stance on that? It just feels like his his mission now is to try to win every race by more than three seconds so he can get, get penalised. The, the only thing that saves him is the fact that we go to a night race and a track that's probably going to be called in Qatar and Valencia, yeah, and that it's going to potentially be less of an issue. But you can't take that risk. You, we don't know yet what the weather is going to do. We don't know, for example, what the brand new resurfaced Qatar track is going to be like um, and, and how much heat's going to be generated. You know, if it's super aggressive, super, uh, super grippy, and it generates a lot of tire temperature, it could be a factor there. And it, it is very typically Martin but it's also a very stupid uh, approach to be taken as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so it's, it's a really strange thing to the point where I'm not 100% sure he meant it because logically, I, just, I don't get it. I don't understand how that, how Banyaya's warning, is is he under the impression that if he gets a three-second penalty, automatically Banyaya gets one as well? Are they, <laughs> are they interlinked together, their fates? I don't know. Um, he can win by three seconds, absolutely, but they're... You can't really bank on that, I don't think. Maybe Jorge Martin believes that he's more likely to win by over three seconds than by a tenth, which honestly maybe isn't so far from the truth, but still, it's not... I would be very concerned, and I would... There's also a problem of wanting yourself to do too much, and we've seen it again, you know, we've seen it at Phillip Island earlier this season, the Jorge Martin approach of, I'm so much faster that I can deal with this handicap to make, give myself an easier race, a solo race. At that point, it was the, you know, the soft rear tire that ensured that he ran most of the race unimpeded up front, but then it ran out and the race was ruined. Here, you could have a similar thing where you have the pressure of a potential time penalty hanging over you because of how you approach the race. So you put yourself under pressure to build a, a bigger lead and you might not succeed and you might have to, you might end up with a more nervy race than you expected, but you also might end up with a championship lost it we might I, we might dodge it we probably will dodge it but it's 
it's certainly an uncomfortable reality and possibility of, you know, having a champion crowned at Valencia and doing a stupid CGI celebration in front of the in front of the grandstands. And then the stewards document coming in with a three second penalty and boom, the points have changed. It would take a lot for that to come together, but it's certainly not impossible, clearly. Um, just to pick up on that waiting for the stewards document, they really need a better system of informing us of these things because um, the nervous anticipation while you're waiting to see who's been penalized as they send them one at a time after the race is going to be nerve-wracking if uh, if there's a championship in the line. And, you know, if they're done in race norm or order and Bagnaya gets a penalty because he's 42 and then, like, I don't know, Rins gets one and then Oliveira gets one at 88. The the tension waiting to see if this one arrives for 89 is going to be incredible. <laughs> um, so the, the, that is one thing. Um, the, the other thing that's worth noting as well is that this is an issue right now. This is something that we're talking about right now. But as the system stands going into next year, there are no warnings and no time penalties. This is an automatic disqualification offense. And like... Imagine the potential for carnage that's going to cause. Because, like, today we would have seen a quarter of the finishers disqualified. Um, this is this is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of how serious this problem is going to become in the next sort of six months unless there's some serious corrective action taken by Dorna, Michelin, the teams, someone. Well, that's, that's a key point then. Who needs to take the action here? Because is... Are these penalties happening because teams are still sailing too close to the wind because it's only a three-second penalty first time out? Or is there actually not a lot they can do about this given how much the the racing circumstances influence what happens to your tyre temperature and, and consequently tyre pressure? I mean, it, it, it's clear that you can, of course, be very much on the safe side and then just accept the pain of a race of potentially really high front tyre pressure, which also often usually means a crash or, you know, frequently means a crash. So... You can be on the safer side, you can be on the more aggressive side. Uh, I think they can't, I, I think they can guarantee compliance, but that is sacrificing results. And you're sort of, you're forcing teams to weigh up the incentive of either flying close to the sun and potentially breaking the rule or just settling for a, a worse race than they could have, they could have had, which like, I don't think the next year's disqualification thing is happening, even though MotoGP has repeatedly said it is, because they can't have four or five bikes thrown out every weekend. It's impossible. That just won't happen. Somebody will have to figure out something else. Nobody wants that. It's Again, it's impossible, I think. But I think the way it is right now also really kind of sucks, because aside from the time penalties after the race, you also create this very weird situation where it doesn't, like you have a a technical infringement joker that that sounds stupid that just by default sounds stupid and we've seen this weekend Alvaro Bautista and Iker Lecuona both get tire pressure warnings it doesn't matter to them like whatever absolutely it's Bautista's sole MotoGP race of the season he can he could run the pressure at zero if he wanted to and there would be <laughs> there would be no penalties or whatever uh it, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make the, 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 the current system as it is doesn't make particular sense. It's clearly imperfect, but you can't just throw them out of the race either. So presumably the solution is, as all the riders say it is, if we're going to monitor tire pressure, then, well, the front limit just has to go down. Like by, by half a bar or a bar, it just has to go down. 
Well, not not full bar, sorry, by half a tenth of a bar, <laughs> tenth of a bar. Uh, but clearly, there's some resistance to that. Otherwise, they would have already done it. And presumably, whatever data Michelin has, whatever has seen from its tires, it somebody there, maybe on the corporate side, maybe on the sporting side, maybe whatever, feels very touchy about lowering this limit at all, and very worried about the possibility of front tire pressures. And I know. I know we haven't seen those particularly, but as as we've said before in this podcast, it only it only takes the one for it to be real, real bad, and they're they're the people with with the tire knowledge in a way. So it's not it's not an easy situation, but it's clearly not a, a pleasant situation either. I mean, th- there's a few people who are convinced that this is uh, something that's coming from a higher level than the Michelin race team. That this is like a corporate decision at this point to uh to you know to, to sort of set this hard bar and not let the guys go past it because no one really understands why otherwise there'd be so much opposition to it because it's making racing worse it is arguably if you listen to the riders making racing more dangerous because they're convinced that uh you know that, that racing at a higher limit actually puts them in more danger because it it increases the possibility of front end crashes and 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 going down like that um, the reasoning for it is is something we should probably also explain. So the the, the uh, not the reasoning, but the cause, the root cause, is that we're using a front tire that wasn't designed for aerodynamics and redhead devices, and it's overloading the tire, and that's what's causing this problem. When it wasn't a problem, you know, in twenty nineteen when we had the same tire, essentially. So this is a new creation. But Michelin have been able to bring in new tires when they said they were going to, partly because of COVID. Um, but the, the the primary reason, as far as I'm concerned, that they haven't been able to bring a new tyre is, Val, you'll, you'll vouch for this as well, having done you know, MotoGP post-race tests. You listen to riders talking at the end of a, a post-race test, and you ask them about the new tyres that Michelin bought for them to try, and they say, oh yeah, I know we didn't have time, we were too busy concentrating on suspension or bike setup or engine. So it's it's a it's it's the riders the yeah. riders bear some responsibility for it yeah for sure but also the championship bears a lot of responsibility because they're the ones that have cut testing time down and not you know mandated that this happens add an extra day onto every one of next season's tests and say you're only allowed out of pit lane in this test if you're using the tires that Michelin want you to use you know that should have been done 2 years ago and then we'd have enough data now to bring a new front tire next year that can cope with the wings and the right height devices. Um, we've th- this rule that no one wants because Michelin doesn't really want it either. They can't want it because they're becoming the topic of conversation and getting all the blame every weekend. So no one wants this to happen, but it's been allowed to happen by both Dorner not doing more to address it quickly enough, and by the manufacturers refusing to get rid of the rings and the right height devices. And we have warned for years about the danger that they pose to the competitiveness of the series and about, you know, all the other blah, blah, blah. And now we're here dealing with the consequences of our own actions. Um, it's it's deeply frustrating to see it all happen because it could have been avoided. Um, but But realistically, this is something we're going to have to deal with for the next year because Michelin aren't ready to bring a new front tire next season. And this is how it is now until 2025, unless Dorna step in and say no more wings, which isn't going to happen. And of course, the problem is this is 
potentially wrecking the title fight in two ways. There's this suspense about whether a penalty is going to decide it. And it seems to be weighing so heavily on how every rider is riding during the races. Martin was particularly vociferous about how it's going to destroy the quality of racing in 2024 after the sprint. And then the Grand Prix. Now, this was tyre wear as well as tyre pressure, wasn't it? It wasn't just that um, Martin's loss of pace was was due to the, the potential for a, a tyre wear penalty. Also, he was, from what I can see, he was burning up the tyres with the pace he was trying to run early on. Because all through this weekend, the riders were expecting the tyres just not to last in, in the Grand Prix. So is Martin's take on this right? Are the, are the riders who say this actually stopping us racing hard and overtaking correct? Because it, it does seem that way from the outside. Yeah, maybe. It's uh, certainly looked that way today. Today looked like basically, I, I, aside from an, a genuinely very interesting podium, Today was a very processional, not at all exciting race. And I think it is clear that riders are having to calculate and think about other factors. And it is maybe not so much the threat of the penalty. I don't think it's the threat of the penalty. I think it's the unwillingness to run too close to your rival rider up ahead because that's going to get your front tire out of control and it's going to ruin your race. I think that's the the much bigger consideration going on uh, because... and. Maybe part of that consideration is that riders are starting with a front pressure higher than they'd like to avoid the sanction, and therefore it's then too high to follow other riders. Because that, that sounds like what, what happened to, to Jorge Martin. He had a temperature and pressure problem on the front, and he was basically, after the first third of the race, he was basically a non-factor. He was just cruising around at a lower pace to the to the leading trio, just finishing a lonely fourth, trying to bring it home without you know, checking it down without crashing. So in a way, it did, it did ruin his race and it probably negatively impacted the thinking of, of many, many of the other riders. I mean, we we said uh, as soon as the race finished what Martin's post-race quotes were going to be. And we were exactly right because you could see, you could see in like the third lap that he was pulling out of the... Whenever he was behind uh, Pago Bagnaya, he was pulling out of Bagnaya's slipstream, costing himself time, letting Bagnaya extend the gap in front just to try and get some cool air in the tyres and to keep it manageable. You know, it, it was visibly apparent from trackside what he was trying to do. Um, it, it's just the way it is right now. That is, you know, that's what you have to deal with and what you have to manage. And to, to go back to, to an earlier point... Uh, we also called that Enea Bastianini would have a warning today. Yeah. Pecco Bagnaia surprised me, but Bastianini I saw coming from a mile away because he spent the entire race in clean air. So effectively, this is not to take anything away from his victory because that's that's part of the current MotoGP strategy. But he didn't he didn't clearly didn't worry about the front tire pressure because the current regulations allow a joker. But what kind of safety rule is that then? If a rider who particularly wants a good weekend can just pick one weekend where he tells the rule to go, you know, F itself. And and I'm pretty sure without going back and looking over all the, you know, looking at this in great detail. But um, basically every time we've seen someone get a bit of clear air in front of them at a hot race in the last few months, this has happened. There's been like multiple examples of you watch someone's race you see how it plays out and you say yep there's a tire pressure warning coming you know there is a predictability about it now um especially you know if you basically you you, you're if you qualify kind of badly and make it 
really good start and find yourself in a bit of clean air in a good position, you're probably going to get penalized for it after the race. You know, look at like Danny Pedrosa in uh, Misano getting penalized for for basically exactly that. Um, that's the that, you know, that's the new trend of it. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Not sure if this is even possible, but if we can take the tires aside for a second... Relative pace of Banyaya and Martin this weekend. Who was actually quickest? Because we had Banyaya back on pole for the first time in a while and then losing to Martin in the sprint and beating him in the Grand Prix. So who who was really on top if we can actually look at it beyond the tyres, Simon? Uh, Bagnaya, I'm, I'm pretty sure, had something of an advantage this weekend or at the very least didn't have the disadvantage that he's had in recent weeks. Um, he was like, he was as happy on Friday as we've seen him in literally in months, uh, the last Friday where he was as cheerful as he was this week was Barcelona before he had that big crash and everything went wrong with the next big chunk of his season. He was confident. He was upbeat. He was talking about how they had brought the bike from Thailand and basically changed nothing, went out and were you know, right away fast again, which is a big difference in the struggles that he's been having in recent weeks and, and you know, chasing feeling that wasn't there. Uh, he demonstrated that in qualifying by, you know, his first pole position in a long time, looking really, really fast and smooth to do it, and doing it completely on his own on a day where everyone else was trying to chase someone. He just went, forced the rest to follow, and was still faster than them all, um, which was a for me a, a big statement. I think sprint races still aren't really his thing, which is why he lost out to Martin on Saturday. But uh, I think he he had good pace on Sunday. He managed the situation very well. 
and I don't know, maybe maybe if we had Sunday's race all over again, I think you'd see Bagnaya winning this time around. I think he was conservative at the start of the race because he you know he was the 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 two in front of him at the start of the race were running basically the exact pace that Bagnaya had said the day before would not be possible in the race in terms of tire life he he thought that if you pushed that hard you would uh you would burn out your tires and not make it to the finish line he did exactly the the lap times he said he was going to try and do at that point in the race uh, I think he was managing it really, really well, but obviously there was a little bit of change in track conditions or something in the weather or that what you know we we had Moto two, Moto three rubber down. We had uh, a little bit of rain overnight. Lots of factors that that just changed a little bit of it. But you know, for me to see him execute his game plan perfectly and use it to beat Martin, he was the faster, more confident, more in control guy all weekend. I wouldn't go that far. I think Martin was still quicker over one lap. Uh, on the on the on the basis of the whole weekend before the sprint, I think Martin was quicker over one lap. And I think if he didn't crash in qualifying when he did, I think pole position probably maybe would have been his again. But even if it wasn't, I think he just just generally, I suspect, not in specific Q2 circumstances, but generally, I think he had a bit extra. But the gap was smaller than it was usually. And the the race pace advantage of Banyaya over Martin was better, bigger than it was usually. So it was it was a, a bit of a shift in the balance, but I I still I still don't think he has Martin covered over a single lap. I, I think honestly the one point championship swing is I think reasonably fair based on their respective weekends. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with that. I don't think there's a lot between them this weekend. I, if anything, Martin impressed me by really showing more evidence that he won't always do stereotypical Martin things in adversity. He he did get through after losing ground at the start. He did finish the race despite his tires going haywire. So that that was that was promising, but I think it's the kind of race that will make him regret things like Phillip Island and uh, the the crash before that even more because if he hadn't thrown away those big points there, he could afford a one point net loss this weekend and still be in pretty good shape. Um but Let's stop talking about the title protagonist because we need to give due credit to the two people who beat them this weekend. And let's start with Ania Bastianini, who, let's not forget, qualified last, last time out in Thailand. And the biggest chat about Bastianini before this weekend, and rightly so in my opinion, was whether Ducati could possibly countenance leaving him on the second factory bike next year if Jorge Martin became world champion at Pramac. So instead, I think that talk is finished now because Bastianini absolutely obliterated everyone uh, on, on Sunday, having been Banyaya's rear gunner in the sprint and qualified in the front row. So Bastianini is, is clearly back. But where did that come from? Val, you take the lead on this one. How did the guy who qualified last, last time out, make everyone else look pretty slow in the Grand Prix today? Well, I, I think the first the first factor is that he's quite good. And, <laughs> you know, clearly quite good at Sepang too on, on MotoGP bikes. Next to Batonis that his motorbike's quite fast as well. <laughs> his motorbike is quite fast, <laughs> yeah. And he was quick at Sepang last yeah. year. Yeah, but neither of these things are impediments to him being quite <laughs> slow true. for that most is, of the season. That is very you know, true. And we've, I also, we've never argued against his talent. <laughs> I feel, I, yeah, suddenly I feel much better about my old take of don't do the swap. Don't There's do no it. point. Uh, I just, I think this is exactly the reason why I thought they shouldn't do it because what Bastianini showed last year did not feel like a flash in the pan. It felt like a serious weapon in his arsenal that you want to maximize and you want to deploy with him. And it, he's not an asset you can burn, was was my feeling. And I think a demotion 
is a very serious risk of, of, of burning that asset. Um, he, so he came into the weekend with a, a couple of things. They've worked on the engine braking a bit, which apparently they've done all season. Uh, but something that they did this weekend, particularly with, with the way it's arranged, seemed to work for him quite well because his previous big strength, strength with the GP21 was stopping, stopping the bike. But for G for the GP23, it's as both Bastianini and Bagnai say, it's not really like it's good at everything else, but it's not as good as this at, at this particular part than it used to be, even though Bagnai is always great on the brakes. But Bagnai has had the full season basically to work out how to make the bike do what exactly what he wants. And Bastianini basically didn't. He missed all those preparation points. And then in his own by his own admission, he maybe tried too much too fast to run the same pace as the others rather than try to fit the package a bit more. He tried to squish the timeline. And I presume that was a big, big reason for why he struggled as much as he did. But also there's just inherent style things. It still doesn't ma- doesn't mean that the GB23 suddenly suits him like a glove. But so yeah, the engine brake thing was one thing. And the other thing was that for the first time he used a thumb operated uh, rear brake this, this weekend as opposed to um, a foot operated rear brake. And that just seemed to, like, he just seemed to adapt to it really well because riders, from my memory, when they talk about doing that kind of switch, they're always wary of how long the adaptation is because it's all, you know, it's all muscle memory. It's presumably that means you're probably going to use it in different parts at different intensity. Bastianini ramped up very fast. He said on Friday that he was abusing it a bit with the thumb, with the thumb and that, that was part of the reason why he didn't make it to, to Q2 directly. But then he... Then he went through Q1, then he put it on the front row, and then he was very, very, very good on Sunday and, and won the race and won it in a style that was maybe a little bit reminiscent of Bastianini of 2022, but also gunning such an early pace that I, I think we basically never saw from him in, well, not never, but we didn't often see from him in, in 2022. He didn't really run a very Bastianini style race because he went gung-ho from the from the start to the finish. He was very fast to begin with and he was very fast at the end. He didn't leave it in reserves for the end. He just eked out his early burst of pace longer and then still had more in reserve. It's a really cool ride, really good ride by him and it's it's just pleasant because I look, I don't think it would have been some sort of crime of the century if Ducati swapped him and, and Martin based on recent form and I, I'm yeah, I couldn't tell you that that's definitively over. For what we know, maybe Ducati will still be thinking about it. But it's it's good that he got to show what he is. I think that's very cool. Because riders don't just become bad overnight, do they? Yeah, I mean, not much to add to that. Um, it was, I think it was probably actually, despite everything he did last year, it was probably the most impressive win of his MotoGP career in terms of... of how well he managed that race because you know it, it very much looked like he controlled the gap to second the whole way through um and, and just sort of stage managed the whole thing it was almost like a almost like a, a bagnaya style of win um and it you know maybe you know we 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 were quite harsh last time out on him i think um i think i was quite harsh on him but it, it genuinely looks like he's taken those lessons on board and, and you know is trying to make really impressive really quick riding style changes um you know it, it was really quite yeah i'm impressed with how quickly he was able to adapt to it um 
obviously the thumb break is a major issue as well, but a major factor. But that one I, I tend to give not give less credit to, but like that's something that everyone else in MotoGP is doing and has been for quite some time. And he, he probably should have been in that bandwagon already. So that's more closing and a disadvantage than gaining anything over the others. But uh, but yeah, definitely to to learn, adapt, improve. You know, we we've maybe not given him credit this year for the step that he's made or that he's had to make. Uh, because it's worth remembering that last year he wasn't on a 2022 Ducati, he was in a 21 bike. So he's he's moved up two generations onto this year's factory machine. And we know that there was a, a fairly substantial change from the 21 bike to the 22 bike. So he's he's made a fairly big jump um, and has then essentially not had any time to adapt to it because he's just been broken since day one. Um, you know, it seems like while he's been wobbling around at the pack getting criticised and with people threatening and his job for next year, he's actually been doing a lot of homework and a lot of studying and uh, it's paid off all of a sudden. Well, I think the key thing there is all of a sudden because I, I don't think we were harsh on Bastianini before. I think uh, personally, I had a lot of hope and expectation for what he'd do this season. And I I did think there'd be a, a bit of acclimatization needed. He was going from a really well-sorted, well-developed Ducati to one that was going to have some more rough edges, but be faster. The, the thing that got me, and you guys look at the intricacies of practice times a lot more than I do, but... Okay, he had those two injury absences, but we have a billion races this season. That's a lot of practice sessions. That's a lot of mileage, really. He had all of winter testing. There didn't seem to be progress being made. Every weekend, his position and his his vibe about it seemed much the same. I thought he'd get to this point eventually because I thought he was too good not to, even if he had to go to a different team to do it. But it wasn't like there was a curve of him going, oh, I've tried this. It's starting to get somewhere. I'm get. I'm going to practice with it more. It it's literally seems the engine braking setting change has just been like a switch overnight. All of a sudden, problem solved. Now I'm fast again, at least at this track. But he's been so fast at this track that I, I can't see any way it doesn't translate. Even if he's not winning next time out, you, you're not going to see him qualifying at the back. You're not going to see like seven or eight places between him and Banyaya from now on, surely. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's still... It's still possible for him to qualify at the back because I'm still not entirely 100% sold on his day-to-day single lap pace, you know? So that's the part I'd really like to to see more. And to I think he's f- found enough comfort to where he's going to be important in races again, over and over again, and I hope so. He also, I see he also does sort of have some of his better tracks and some of his worst tracks, and I think his, his track-to-track variance is bigger than a guy like Vanyaya. I think it just is. And it, it might have to do with experience, but it, it just might also be the kind of rider he is. Um, but I, this is important because you don't, you don't do this kind of result if you can't have at least pretty good results every other weekend. So this was this was an absolutely enormous step that you can't really, you cannot chalk off to weekend to weekend variants. It's enormous. It was huge. So. Is, in terms of whether we were harsh or not, and when you say we, Matt... Uh, okay, it wasn't you, I'm, was I'm probably, it? It's us too. Yeah, it was never... It, yeah. But, but to be fair, I, no, I don't think so. But it's also, you know, this season's so long that it it makes 2022 feel like a distant memory from a bygone age. So it, it makes total sense. And it's, you know, it is how MotoGP works. And everybody's very anxious every weekend to secure the best position for the future for themselves and when we've seen Jorge Martin in the form that we've seen him in it's fair to ask 
whatever's going on with Enea Bastianini. Can Ducati afford to lose or alienate Jorge Martin while waiting for Bastianini to return to form? And whether that return to form will in any way be enough to allow somebody like Martin to be to have, have their head turned by somebody else to walk away. So it's 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 a more complicated situation than either saying yes, definitely swap him, or saying don't even think about it for a second. I think earlier in the season it was unthinkable. Right now it is thinkable, yes, which is the, what which Ducati also said. But after this result, I think it's much easier to convince everybody involved that it's. It's fair to keep it the way it is. Uh, well, for me, it doesn't. It doesn't remove the problem that Simon and I banged on about last week, in that a lot of Ducati promotional material is going to look strange next season if Martin is its world champion on a satellite bike. That problem hasn't moved, but Bastianini suddenly being really good again takes away the easy solution to that problem, and it takes away. For the Martin camp, it takes away much of a claim to go, just kick this guy out, we should be on that bike. Martin may still feel affronted, and it may make him look elsewhere beyond 2024, but he's got less grounds to do it if Bastianini is winning races rather than trundling around midfield. It, it makes Ducati's life seem even more complicated in 2024 if you've got Bastianini trying to prove that he really can lead the works team as well as Bagnaia potentially defending another title, Martin trying to win another title at Pramac, and Mark Marquez turning up. I mean, Ducati's life has got very hassly by signing every good rider and having a brilliant bike. So, you know, mixed blessings there. Um, speaking of all that as well, actually, we should also talk about the sprint winner and Grand Prix runner-up Alex Marquez, uh, who... <laughs> so we talked a lot about Brad Binder and how he raced against the title contenders last time out. And Binder's racing against... Banyar and Martin in Thailand was kind of hard but respectful and kind of well judged and very precise I felt Alex Marquez is riding against title contenders in the sprint on Saturday was basically like you've got tons to lose I'm gonna throw myself at you and make it your problem and I kind of admire that given that he didn't actually take any of them out if, if he had I think that could have been a real real mess but he didn't so good effort but yeah this was it felt like a bit of a breakthrough weekend for Alex Marquez, didn't it? I mean, the the difference for me in Alex Marquez and Brad Binder is that they both dance on a very fine line, but Binder is better at being on the right side of it than Alex Marquez is. Um, Alex Marquez is someone that's had an awful lot of bad luck this season, but whenever you really analyse his bad luck, a lot of it's self-made by putting himself in stupid positions with aggressive moves and, and sort of larry attacks and just stuffing it up the inside of people and then suddenly run out of room and stuff like that he he's an aggressive writer um he actually i think he at times makes mark look quite tame but maybe that's because mark has a bit more natural ability to you know control these stupid things that they both do um as a result of that he's a really kind of difficult year where he's you know he spent a lot of the year hurt he's been up and down performance wise he's crashed out of good positions um he's, he's not really delivered this season the way that we you know maybe expected him to a few months ago uh, until this weekend um he admitted kind of to me after the sprint that his maybe not strategy was to put the fear into the two title contenders, but at least that he knew that they were a little bit afraid of him and he used that to his advantage. Um, he, you know, sort of <laughs> shoulder charged both of them out of the way, got to the front, cleared off, fantastic sprint win, his second of the season. 
Um, his race on Sunday, though, to second behind Bastianini was actually much more impressive because it was a lot less aggressive, uh, a lot more controlled, a lot more calculated. You know, he he essentially rode the same race as Bastianini, except a second and a half slower. Uh, really, really strong race. Um, maybe if it had went on another two or three laps, Peko Bagnaia would have hunted him down and passed him as his tyres started to go a little bit. But, you know, given that what Bagnaia told us about the way that the tire, he expected the tyres to fade, um, and given the fact that they were probably both working off the same uh, Ducati AI software that determines tyre wear, um, I would imagine that means that Alex Marquez also didn't really expect his tires to last, but you know, gung ho, Alex Marquez went for it anyway, and uh, this time it did pay off. And yeah, that for me is um, Sunday in particular was was probably the best ride of his MotoGP career so far. Uh, Marquez said after after Sunday that actually, like, he took it a bit like the, the place where he lost the race was the early laps, basically letting Bastianini build a buffer that he could never break through. So in a sense, he actually maybe took it too conservatively, also because of the worry of the of the tire wear it's probably it's probably unwise to bet against bastianini in a tire wear game even if it's a bastianini a year removed from from his absolute peak but Antsmark is also just on fire this weekend he was the the guy on the wish you were here album cover he was is fantastic he was the the quickest rider in the weekend i believe i think if he led after the opening laps i think he he would have won the race i think Probably could have been on pole if qualifying, if Q2 wasn't weird, which was a little bit. And in the sprint, he was fantastic. And maybe most importantly, he's on a year-old Ducati. The year-old Ducatis that weren't Alex Marquez didn't, didn't do great this weekend. Marco Mazzecchi was muted. Luca Marini struggled. Fabio Di Antonio had a, a messy weekend with technical issues and stuff like that. And there was Alex Marquez, who was basically the quickest rider out there, or at least very close to being that. So... Superb weekend, absolutely fantastic. Um, it doesn't make me feel too different about his season because it's one weekend we've seen really good pace peaks from Alex Marquez this season. And it's, you know, ch- chances, mathematical chances are always that at least one weekend in 20, you will put it all together. And he basically did this weekend. But it's a question of whether he can do it more frequently than that. I think that's the the interesting question. And whether he can do that on whether there will be weekends next year where he's so fast that he's outpacing Mark too. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, Val, you raised the topic of Mark Marquez. He hasn't featured in this podcast particularly yet. Let's talk about Mark Marquez and 2024 and who will get his Honda seat because after we let you bang on about Fermin Aldega for ages on the last podcast, that possibility disappeared. It turned out Honda had contacted even more people than we thought, but the one-year deal aspect was really, really getting in the way. And then we end the weekend with Luca Marini seeming 
is near certain too strong certainly strong strong favorite to step onto mark marquez's repsol honda for 2024 and i definitely wasn't expecting that five days ago so who wants to let's actually let's go for let's let's not worry about the route to mark marini particularly let's talk about marini first is marini a good signing for repsol honda to replace mark marquez if this happens yes 100 percent uh, so Luca Marini is so, so, um, actually Johan Zarco put it really well um, with with what sounded like an insult, but really wasn't. It was really, really meant as a, a real complimentary uh, explanation. Um, he said that he doesn't believe that Luca Marini is one of the more talented riders in the MotoGP grid, and really that. That is backed up by his career. It's it's taken him a long time to do pretty much everything that he's done successfully. Um, I think he's he's one of the few guys there, you know, in terms of championships and race wins. He's at the lower end of that spectrum. But what he lacks in natural raw talent, he more than makes up for in hard work, intelligence, dedication, number crunching, data analysis, being the last one out of the pit box in the evening. Um, you know, haven't spent all day studying uh, d- data with his crew. So that is one huge strength uh, in his favor. The other huge strength, then, according to Juan Mir, who it's looking like will be his teammate next year, is that you know, Mir says he's, from, from everything he's seen of Marini, he's a super smooth rider. And super smooth riders are the ones that give best be- feedback because they're the ones that can feel more from the bike. And he, he kind of, he didn't mention Mark Marquez by name, but he said that, you know, some people are animals that just wrestle the bike around and get over every problem that it has and can't give very good feedback, very much implying that his current teammate was one of those, um, which is, you know, that's that's not a, uh, a surprise. That's something we've always known, that the, the raw talent MotoGP riders are the worst at uh, developing bikes because they're the best at hiding problems. So taking someone who is a good MotoGP rider but not a great MotoGP rider who is very very good at data and analysis and feedback and who is very sensitive to what a bike is doing and how a bike changes yeah that's that's probably a really good fit for what Honda needs right now to to help develop the bike um Zarco said that he feels that despite having spent longer on the Ducati than Marini, Marini actually understands the bike better because of the way that he works and, and how much effort he puts into what he does. So, it, it, you know, it, it's a wild card. It's not one that any of us expected to see linked to the, the bike, to the team, but it's one that really makes quite a bit of sense. Yeah, I'm, I mean, the, the, their options weren't, weren't limitless and Marini is... Obviously, more experienced than Fabio Di Giannantonio has a, a wider body of work, and yeah, as, as Simon said, he's you know he's got the reputation for being maybe a bit of a late bloomer, but also obviously a, a very deep thinker and a very hardworking rider. Which you know, sometimes hardworking is indeed a bit of an insult because that means you're making up for for something else for a lack of raw talent but we, we shouldn't see it like that there's no real need to see it like that especially in, in honda's situation it's you know it's good to have a smart hard-working guy in the project it feels to me like he and joan mir are fairly similar personalities too maybe i'm wrong but i think there's there's something there yeah. um 
But I want to. I, I'd, I'd be happy to see it happen. It 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 it, it, it stinks. So that probably means that Fabio Gian Antonio will not be on the Premier Class grid next year. I don't like that so much. I I feel a bit sad about it. But you can't fit fit them all in. Such is life. Um, I do want to go back to something though. Um, after the whole Fermin Aldeguer thing and the the way it's been talked about this weekend sounds like Honda wasn't interested, but Fermin Aldeguer's camp tried to try to talk them into it, basically. And it sounds like Alberto Puig has just dismissed it outright. And I've seen a, a widespread reaction, including from somebody on this podcast, too, that was basically like, it was it was never happening. It was totally insane. There's no reason whatsoever to do it. <laughs> then on Sunday, you know, I wake up, I watch the Moto2 race in the morning. I watch Fermi Naldeguer absolutely brutalize the rest of the grid, like just absolutely kick their butts a week after, uh, two weeks after he did that at another track. And... He should have also done it at Phillip Island too if the race was dry. I, the guy is super, super talented, and I, I don't see why getting in on the ground floor would have been such an unthinkable, unthinkable idea. Because Honda, it, it is not the riders do play a part in developing the bike, right? So that's a reason not to get the rookie rider. But that will not make or break the project. The technical knowledge will make or break the project from the technical staff. And having somebody who you could potentially build around properly in the future, or at least trying them out and seeing what if you do have something super, super special there. I, I, you know, Honda clearly didn't consider it too much, but I thought they should. And I, I still think it would have been an interesting thing to consider. I'm not saying I would have picked him over Luca Marini, but it's not. I think it's it's wrong to see it as a completely unthinkable, unthinkable series of events. And now it sounds like another manufacturer will potentially get him on the ground floor in MotoGP. So I, I'd like to know what the other MotoGP manufacturers think of that, because as, as, as Matt says, Ducati signs all the good talents and then tries to figure out what to do with them. It sounds a lot like Fermi Aldeguer will now be another really good talent who Ducati, through its network of infinite seats, <laughs> might also get its hands on. I, I mean, I, my one my one point that I have to pick with what you've just said, Val, is that Repsol Honda is not the ground floor of MotoGP. It's like the secret bunker under sub-base. <laughs> Look at the six. standings. This is, this <laughs> is, you know what I mean? The ground floor is so much way up above where Repsol Honda is right now. And I think, uh, you know, Alicia Spagaro hit the nail on the head at the start of the weekend when he said that technically Aldegar is ready for a MotoGP ride. And if it was a Ducati or a, an Aprilia, he should jump at it. But if it was a... At Honda, he mentally wasn't prepared for basically a year of being beaten down by crashing every weekend and, and hurting himself. Um, so in a way, Luca Marini getting the factory seat that he covets really badly, but was never going to get a Ducati, and Aldegar replacing him at VR46 is kind of the perfect solution for everyone, including maybe even Fabio Di Antonio. Because I think right now the most realistic place for him is on the Moto2 grid on a speed-up that's doing really, really well right now in the hands of Firmin Eldegar. Yeah, I, I can't see anything wrong for Eldegar. He, he's ended up, potentially, if all this comes to pass and we don't reconvene next week with a totally different set of riders linked to Repsol Honda and a whole new storyline, or Mar Marquez not actually leaving after all, or whatever might happen next. 
Eldega getting a nice, well-sorted, old-spec Ducati in a team that can win races. That's a lovely start to your MotoGP career. Take that, definitely. And Honda getting a thoughtful, experienced rider. Uh, Marini plus Mir plus Zarco plus Nakagami. Actually, let's not discount what Taka Nakagami did in 2020 in terms of development direction as well. That's a lovely lineup for just quietly getting your bike sorted and not breaking anything for a while. The, the, the genuinely, there was a point this afternoon where we'd spoken to Taka, we'd spoken to Juan, we'd spoken to Alex or to Mark Marquez, who basically confirmed that Marini was going to replace him. And we were speaking to Zarco, and Zarco was describing all the reasons why he'd really like Luca Marini to come into the team. And, and there was a bit of me that thought, you know what? Honda have actually, if they've signed Luca Marini, they've actually put together something of a development dream team here. This is a really good bunch of people. Out of all of the difficulties that they've had in the last few months, they've put together a really strong package of four riders to turn this project around. This is this is the people that they needed, and they've done really well to get them, actually. But the other thing Marquez said, so Marquez was quizzed about the fact that this is now Valentino's brother, uh, Valentino Rossi's brother taking his ride, um, a, a member of the Rossi family back on the Repsol Honda. There's all kinds of history there across multiple levels. Now, obviously, as much as there's bad blood between Marquez and Rossi, Mark was very quick to say he gets on well with Luca Marini. That's that's not an issue. Yeah, he, he, was, he was very, very strong to point out that Luca Marini is not Valentino Rossi and that him and Rossi have had their differences, but him and Luca don't have their differences. They're they're not best friends, but they're also not massive enemies the way that the way actually that I think him and some of the other members of the Academy can be. Um I think there's definitely there's more blood blood between other Academy members and the Marquez camp than than there is between uh Marini in particular. Um the the other thing um, about this that basically the entire internet has asked me since uh, since this news, this rumours started to come out, um, is that, you know, we there's a few people are saying that there's, there's just minor issues to sort out uh, before they can sign the deal. And is the minor issue that they have to sort out whether or not Valentino Rossi can finally get that NSR 500 that Honda <laughs> promised him and never gave him written into Marini's contract <laughs> right now? <laughs> The, the other thing that Marcus did raise, though, his comments were very complimentary towards Marini as a rider and as a person. But he also basically said, why the hell would he do it? The line was something like, I'm going to a good bike. He's leaving a good bike for a project. And I know you've said Marini really wants to be a factory rider. And I assume the financial incentive is pretty big. But this is... And I know there's a lot of riders at Ducati who will be winning races and winning championships before Marini. Even with all that said... I see where Marquez is coming from. I don't see there's a lot to tantalise Marini at Repsol Honda compared to what he could have if he stayed put at VR46 Ducati. Convince me that I'm wrong about that and there's there's personal logic for him too. I, I object to your framing of this question because you brought up the two best reasons for why he's doing it, which is the prestige yeah, of factory Yeah, I'm just either is, either is good enough. Well, is it, it isn't good enough in terms of results. I think... Luca Marini on a Honda next year will finish lower in the standings, assuming he's confirmed, than he would have finished on a VR46 year old Ducati. That is my suspicion. I think that's overwhelmingly likely, if I'm being honest. I think that Luca Marini probably did also see the, as Simon has alluded to, the path to a works Ducati blocked off for ever. 
forever, forever, yeah, basically. So the, the amount of people he would have to overtake and, you know, he, he can reach a certain level. He can be good and he can be a real asset. But to, to bet, bet on yourself beating all of those guys swiftly enough and quickly enough to where you're still in your prime rather than trying to get to the front another way by developing a different project where you can play a more central role. I mean, that's the logic he basically used when he spoke about it. And that that makes sense to me. But also just, I think legacy matters a lot to MotoGP riders. And Luca still needs to get that first win, yes. But otherwise, I think if he's, as long as he stays in that satellite VR46 Ducati, this is basically his level. I think we've seen generally where he will be as a MotoGP rider, which is that he... He will score a handful of podiums and maybe get that elusive first win uh, season after season after season. But instead, instead he can be the big boy going to one of MotoGP's biggest manufacturers and trying to trying to really roll the dice there and make make this huge, huge impact. And if it, you know, if it doesn't work, if he doesn't succeed, if it's just a one-year rental and then, you know, he's just not quick enough to begin with and want to find somebody else, some bigger, bigger name, uh, bigger name signing, uh, the way Marini is taken care of by the VR46 scheme and the way the VR46 scheme that generally takes care of its own, he'll still be on the grid. <laughs> he'll find a late landing spot. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a roll of the dice to where maybe he's sacrificing some podiums and a good chance for the win. But I think longer term, in terms of legacy, it's the kind of punt that you you take if you've grown up dreaming of being MotoGP world champion. It's the it's because that's already a roll of the dice. It takes a certain mindset, and this is a roll of the dice too. If you told the struggling European Moto Two Championship contender Luca Marini that one day Repsol Honda would come and ask for him to ride for them. Um, I think he'd have bitten your arm off at it. And, and that's where we are right now. Um, I think he, you know, this is a kid who spent his entire early career being told that he was only where he was because of who his, his brother was and who has always had that stacked against him. And now Repsol Honda have come and asked for him to ride for them. That, that I think, you cannot uh, underestimate how powerful a thing that is that they want him to come and race for them. Uh, it is, you know, they are still the big team. They are still Honda. They are the team where, you know, he would have first, I think, first remembered watching his brother race, would have been on a Repsol Honda, given his age and, you know, sort of early memories. Um, th there's so, so, so much of the family history tied up in that squad and in MotoGP's history, and now they want him to ride for it. And I think his part of his reasoning for jumping at it will be the same as Joan Zarco's was, turning down the best bike in the grid and a safe bet and a comfortable place for a new challenge because he can make it his own. Because Marini is a super intelligent, you know, super switched on guy who will absolutely get that, uh, you know, that this is something for him to really dig his teeth into. And... Can I see can I see him finishing better next year on the Repsol Honda than he would have on the VR46 Ducati? No, not a not a chance in hell. But in three years' time, whenever him and Zarko and Nakagami and, and Mir have done all this work and all this development, you don't know. You you don't know how you know 
everyone keeps saying that Honda are not down and out. They're down right now, but they're not going to stay down because they're Honda and they will find a way out of this. And if you're going to be the guy that takes a punt on it, you know, and, and, and being there long enough to see them come back to the top, then you're in a golden ticket as well. So the, there's there's a risk versus reward. He's got a safety net that a lot of other people in the paddock don't have because of what Val said about the academy looking after their own. So why not do it? I, I genuinely can't see a reason not to. Oh, and his salary is going to literally multiply by about 15. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. Like he's, wow. we're talking about a guy who's 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 probably earning two or three hundred thousand euros a season, who's now looking at maybe a five million euro offer. There's a big pay jump here, the sort that most people can't even imagine. Um, which, yeah, I'm I'm sure I'm sure the first day he uh, the first day he finishes his deal and walks back into the VR46 ranch. Uh, there'll be a little bit more swagger about him once it's uh, made abundantly clear that suddenly he's like maybe even the best paid writer in the academy because, um, you know, we know that Ducati pays small salaries and big win bonuses. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're starting to sell me on the logic slightly, but uh, I can stay. Yeah, I, I'm still lean. I, I admire taking on a challenge. I really admire that. I just wonder. I I've, I feel like during the course of this season, anytime anyone's been linked with Honda, my strong reaction has been don't do it and some reasons why not to. So I think that probably influences this this as well. Uh, two pieces of other business to round off the podcast. Two people we have to talk about had very contrasting weekends. Let's do Alvaro Bautista first. So... Alvaro Bautista, double, dominant double world superbike champion, back in MotoGP after a five-year absence, riding a factory-spec test team run Ducati as a world card. Bit of fun, no pressure on it, but given what he's done in superbikes, uh, we thought this might be something a bit special. It it really, really, really wasn't, and the, the full reason for that only emerged after the race. So let's tell the listeners why Bautista's return was was quite this bad, Simon. So um, after the final round of the World Superbike Championship in Jerez, there was a test. Uh, he crashed in the test and I think has very much been hiding how badly he hurt himself from the whole world since then, knowing that he had a chance to ride a MotoGP bike coming up. Uh, he explained it as as kind of right up at the top of his neck damage. He said he landed in his head. Um, it you know, without going down the concussion rabbit hole again, it's sounded like he'd smashed up his head a bit and hurt his neck and his, his sort of his brainstem area. Um, and he discovered whenever he jumped back in the bike that he was had some sort of nerve damage or trap nerve or whatever and had no power in the left-hand side of his body. And it just got worse and worse all weekend. So um, he said it, it was so noticeable that the, the data guys were asking him, you know, was he lacking confidence through the left-hand corners because they could see how visibly fast or he was through right-hand corners in the data trace afterwards? And, yeah, he, he hid it from everyone. He only told the team what had happened after the sprint race on Saturday. And, I, he, you know, he said afterwards that basically he was really frustrated because he'd wasted uh, a golden opportunity for a much, much better result, he felt. Yeah, it's a real it's a real shame because we were talking a lot before the weekend about the potential for this to be another Danny Pedrosa cameo. You know, Pedrosa was a top six runner when he came in on the KTM for a couple of world cards. He was very familiar with this bike, but Bautista's Ducati Superbike has enough in common characteristic-wise with the MotoGP bike and its kind of DNA, basically. He'd had some tests. He is on this incredible run of form in Superbikes. 
I was... I have to say my expectations weren't high because I'm a bit of a Bautista skeptic. I don't, I don't want to denigrate Superbikes. I don't want to denigrate what he's doing over there. But I feel like MotoGP had a lot of chance over about a decade, was it, in MotoGP for, to, to know what Bautista was about. And some podiums, one top five finish in the championship. I would have, I would have not been at all offended if Bautista had won three or four MotoGP races. He was a very decent rider. But I don't think, I don't think MotoGP denied him opportunities he had a chance to show what he could do he did it it was fine then he moved on he was fantastic at something else i don't think he was a pedrosa certainly so am i am i being harsh there i think that's a fairly fair assessment but i think he's also put jacati in a position where they kind of have to bring him back for another wild card now true um just to see just to see what you know Sorry, Michele Pirro, but obviously he can't come back this year because Pirro's already done two wild cards yeah. at uh, Mugello and Mizano, so they, they've used their three wild cards for the year now. So we, they can't suddenly decide to bring him to Valencia just to see. And if, if rumours are to be believed, I think they might not be able to do it next year either because of a, of a reworked con- concessions frame framing that isn't entirely clear yet. Yeah. So yeah, might have been his one and only chance. Hopefully not. Yeah, and as much as I'm a Bautista skeptic, if that if that was it, uh, so it's a really sad way to be basically last or next to last through the weekend. Actually, did deserve a bit better than that, even if I don't think he would have been embarrassing too many MotoGP regulars in the way Pedrosa did. The other uh, external to MotoGP person we need to talk about is Pedro Acosta, who, as expected, sealed the Moto2 World Championship. Now, we're not going to talk too much about Acosta now because I have a feeling that we're going to be talking about Acosta a lot over the winter and next year as he comes into to MotoGP. This, there's so much excitement about this kid. Um, but let's have some thoughts today on how he clinched the title and uh, what's being said about him in, in the MotoGP paddock because uh, Marquez was quite interesting on him today, wasn't he? Well, yeah, he clinched the title by being beaten by Fermin Aldegar. I've heard that Aldegar's how... really good, Val. <laughs> yeah, 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 but no, 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 no. Val, are you uh, a Fermin Aldegar fan? You've never mentioned it on the podcast. No, I'm, I'm massively like overcorrecting for what I felt was an unjust <laughs> interpretation of of an earlier situation. I don't think Fermin Aldegar is a safer bet than Pedro Acosta in any way, shape, or form. I think Acosta is on the strength of his Moto3 and Moto2 time so far, a generational talent. Mark Marquez today went as far as to say that he could be the next guy in the lineage of Rossi, Lorenzo, Stoner, and Marquez, in that he, he uh, could Duan. be... He actually and started Duan, Yeah, he started with Duan, yeah. Is, so yeah. basically what he means is he, he is he could be the kind of talent who makes a MotoGP era his own, basically. Um, but that's, you know, there's still a lot to prove, still a lot to prove in that regard, but obviously super adaptable, super fast, uh, clutch if if that makes any sense just a really really exciting and mentally well put together rider who will be on a pretty decent bike next year so there could already be of an important presence next year even though i think it is i am i'm wary of expecting too much because just it's hard to be a KTM rookie, I think. Uh, yeah, Ralph Fernandez <laughs> scenario is yeah, in head. Yeah, we, we expect a lot of Ralph Fernandez, and we still haven't really seen it over any sustained period of time in MotoGP. And you never know if if a similar type of thing is possible with anybody coming in. Uh, but you know, Acosta's as safe a bet as you're going to get in that type of in that type of respect. I love that Mark Marquez just can't help himself but play games. 
And even after basically calling Pedro Acosta the next Dune, he then went on to say, but, you know, he's coming into the championship next year in a really good bike and he's got all the tools he needs to perform instantly and he should be looking to do what I'm doing and win from the start. He can't help himself playing mind games. It's uh, it's actually impressive. It's glorious. Well, is, is he banking this for, for when him and Acosta are KTM factory teammates in 2026 or something? Is that... Mark is like, okay, this kid's 19 now. Got to get in his head because in a minute we're sharing a garage and I'm building a wall down the middle of it. It's very possible, isn't it? Brad Binder will have some things to say about that, but this is a a potential scenario. Uh, there'll be there'll be Husqvarna teammates by that point. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, on our 24 bike grid. Right, let's uh, let's end on our now traditional uh, Larry title fight prediction. So two more rounds to go. Qatar straight up next weekend. At the end of the of the Thai Grand Prix podcast, our predictions were in reverse order of rightness. I predicted that Martin would leave Sepang two points ahead of Banyaya. Val predicted that Banyaya would leave Sepang three points ahead. Simon, you predicted Banyaya's points lead would be eighteen, and your very boring choice was the right one because Banyaya's points lead is of course fourteen now. So let's uh, keep this keep this running. Simon, you can go first as the winner. Who will be the championship leader after Qatar and what will their points lead be? Bagnaya by 21 points. Okay, Val? Uh, Bagnaya by 16. Okay, I'm going for... Yeah, I'm giggling about Val's response, really. I'm going for Bagnaya by two points. All right, so you got you to gotta give me the maths on that. I, I want to know how okay. you... Okay, so I used I use maths this time, but my maths was not to think about... So did I, actually. Okay, <laughs> so you two thought through actual potential Qatar, yes. Qatar results. Yeah, right, I learning. just went, what outcome would make Valencia winner-take-all across Sprint and Grand Prix? Right. And it's that one, really. That allows uh, Banyaya, Martin, 1-2 in Sprint and Grand Prix in whichever order to decide and it keeps it open till Sunday. So I've gone for my preferred end outcome and I don't really care about the maths that get me there. I've basically went for one apiece. Yeah, similar to this weekend, one finishing ahead in each. Yeah. In each race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think with how things are, even if you're absolutely right and it's the 20-ish points gap after Qatar, you know, a soggy potentially wintry Valencia with everything up for grabs there. I, I don't think Banyayo can feel safe going into Valencia with that kind of margin. He didn't last year. No. Clearly didn't. It clearly weighed on him, so entirely possible. Yeah. And this time he's got a title rival on, on the same bike who is um, just a, a self-confessed lunatic, basically, with <laughs> returning to start the podcast with Martin's response to Banyaya having a warning as well, meaning now I can do whatever I want always. <laughs> so thank you for your company, listeners. Um, let's see how Martin's do whatever I want always tactics pang out in uh, Qatar next weekend and how Banyaya's slightly more cerebral approach pays off uh, in comparison. Uh, we'll be back straight after the Qatar Grand Prix to discuss every other development in the title fight and who's on the Repsol Honda for 2024 next week might officially be Luca Marini hadn't it but let's not put any money on that just yet The Athletic